When news breaks, go beyond the headlines with the new MSNBC app. Get real-time analysis from live blogs to in-depth essays, video highlights from your favorite shows and hosts, and the latest updates on the 2024 election. Go beyond the what to understand the why. Download the app now at msnbc.com slash app. Tonight on The Readout. They want to put me in jail. They're going after me without any protection of my rights by the Supreme Court or most other courts. This vicious persecution is a travesty of justice. This is a political hit job. I'm going to have to sit here for months on a trial. I think it's ridiculous. It's unfair. Trump often whines about the unfairness of it all. The two tiers of justice. Well, he's right. There is a tier for Trump who remains a free man and another tier for the many, many other Americans who go to prison for much less than what he's done. Also tonight, brave mourners defy the Kremlin outside the funeral of Russian opposition leader Alexei Navalny, crying out, Putin is a murderer and we won't forgive. We'll discuss how their valor contrasts with the weakness and capitulation of the Putin and Trump stooges in America's Republican Party. Plus, on this first day of Women's History Month, we'll call up the Bayhive, or is it Beehive, to discuss how Beyonce, who is number one on the country music charts, is helping shine a light on the black pioneers in the genre, particularly black women. But we begin tonight with the wildest of American dichotomies. The United States is the world's largest carceral state. We put more people in prison than any country on earth. With about 330 million people in our total population, the U.S. currently has more than 1.7 million of those people in prison. By contrast, the second highest prison population in the world, China, has 1.6 million prisoners out of a population of just under 1.5 billion people. Number four, incarcerator India has more than 573,000 prisoners out of 1.4 billion people. And number five, Russia has more than 433,000 prisoners that we know of out of 146 million people, including those three Americans they're holding hostage and political prisoners like Vladimir Karamurza. But back to the USA. Just to put it in perspective, Our prison population amounts to about one quarter of the prison population of the entire world. And if you go by incarceration rate, the only countries with a higher rate of locking people up per 100,000 citizens are El Salvador, Cuba, Rwanda, Turkmenistan, and the territory of American Samoa. In short, the United States is very good at locking people up. But somehow... Not this guy. For some reason, the U.S. is having a really hard time locking up this one person, Donald Trump. Even just getting him to face a criminal trial feels impossible as his lawyers seek to delay these cases from proceeding until after the American public decides whether or not they want him back in the White House. We saw this effort on full display today in two different hearings. First in Florida, in the classified documents case, where Trump is literally accused of stealing national secrets. Trump appointed Judge Aileen Cannon did not rule on when that trial should start or even if it should happen before November. 
And in Georgia, a judge heard closing arguments on whether Fulton County DA Fonnie Willis should be disqualified from that state's election interference case, which, if she is, would all but certainly delay that trial until, you guessed it, after the election. But why? Why is it so hard to get Donald Trump to actually face accountability for these very serious alleged crimes? I mean, if you were one of the thousands of rubes who stormed the Capitol on January 6, 2021, fueled by Trump's big lie, which he launched literally because he was embarrassed that he was going to lose to Joe Biden and then did, in fact, lose to Joe Biden, you are probably in jail right now or you've spent time in prison for it. You've probably lost your job and been humiliated in your local community. In short, your life was ruined by your damn near religious belief in Donald Trump. If you live in a red state and you seek an abortion, even if you are 10 years old, your doctor can be reprimanded for it. And maybe your Uber driver if you live in Texas. If you are a woman in Missouri and you are raped and impregnated as a result of that rape and you seek an abortion, the state of Missouri wants to put you in prison. If you're a woman in Ohio, you can face trial for having a miscarriage just in case your miscarriage was really an abortion. Because, you know, in our new Handmaid's Tale America, as our dumbest U.S. senator said. We need to have more kids. We need to have an opportunity to do that. We need more kids. We need the people to, to have the opportunity to have kids. Yeah, except if the kids come via IVF which the Alabama Supreme Court seems intent on banning, something that could happen nationwide, too, because the right-wing Christians say so, and they're in charge of us. If you are the former top prosecutor in Baltimore, you can be tried and convicted for taking money out of your own 401k to buy a vacation property, or let's just be honest, to punish you for prosecuting the cops who killed Freddie Gray. If you are Donald Trump's former lawyer, you can be jailed for taking out a second mortgage to write a six-figure check to the porn star Donald Trump slept with, though married, and re-jailed for refusing to stop writing a book about why you jumped off the Trump train. If you are a former military intelligence officer, you will absolutely be jailed for taking classified documents home. But if you're Donald Trump, somehow you, you can't be jailed, not for stealing classified documents, not for lying about your property values to get cheaper loans and cheating on decades of your taxes. And weirdly enough, not even for trying to overthrow the government. Apparently, if you're Donald Trump and only if you are Donald Trump, you are above the law in America. You are unjailable. The Justice Department will slow walk charging you with insurrection for three full years while charging everyone who did the ground invasion of the Capitol. And the attorney general will even appoint a special prosecutor to charge you, even though you're no longer president. So why would you need a special prosecutor when we have a whole attorney general? If you are Trump and only if you are Donald Trump, the feds will beg you, beg you for 18 months to please, please give them back the nuclear secrets that you're hiding in your bathroom instead of kicking down your door and taking them like they would any other American. And then when you do get charged by that same special prosecutor, somehow the random system will put in front of you, will put you in front of your favorite handpicked judge who will slow walk the case for you. And no less a court than the Supreme Court of the whole United States, filled with three more of your handpicked judges, plus three other Republicans will slow walk all of your cases to make sure that they don't happen until after the election that they clearly hope will make you president again so you can pardon yourself and get away with everything. And tens of millions of Americans will not just cheer for these awful things. They, too, will try to make you president again. 
So you can kill another million people in a pandemic and crash the economy and steal migrant babies from their moms again? What a country for Donald Trump. The rest of us, not so much. Joining me now is Andrew Weissman, former senior member of the Mueller probe and MSNBC legal analyst Katie Fang, trial attorney and host of the Katie Fang show right here on MSNBC, and Tim O'Brien, senior executive editor of Bloomberg Opinion and MSNBC political analyst. Andrew Weissman, I go to you first. Talk me down, my friend, because it does seem to me that this one American out of 330 million Americans is untouchable. Well, you know, I'm going to agree and slightly disagree. The thing that I think you are completely right about is in this country, if you are wealthy and white, there is a different system of justice, um, both at the federal and state level. Um, I spent many, many years in the Department of Justice prosecuting people and companies um, whether it was organized crime or corporate crime, who were wealthy white people. And it is just impossible to um, not face facts that they are given a disproportionate um, amount of justice. Their cases are reviewed in a closer way. Judges look at them and judges who for many, many years were also of the exact same race and class and wealth would see identify themselves um, with the defendants and not view them the same way that they viewed other people. And just to be clear, I am not saying that that is not the appropriate level of scrutiny that should be given to criminal defendants. It's that it's not given to everyone. Um, everyone is entitled to that close scrutiny. And it just simply is the case that if you are in the group of people that Donald Trump is in, you have that heightened scrutiny that is not afforded to everyone else. Now, um, you know, so he is in that group of people that enjoy that. Um, there is no question that, that because he is the former president, he is getting an extra dollop, just to put it bluntly, <laughs> um, of, of scrutiny. Um, in connection with all of his cases, whether it's his conduct pretrial, where there would be very different bail conditions if he was even let out on bail, um, to the amount of review on appeal, um, to, frankly, blatant uh, uh, ways in which Judge Cannon has referred to the fact that he deserves extra um, and better treatment because of his former position. She was reversed on that precise ground with the 11th Circuit saying, no, he's not. He's treated just like anyone else. And you have the D.C. Circuit saying, no, he is citizen Trump now. Right. Um, but that is a real issue in this country of people not being willing to see everyone as we're all the same station. Um, we may be doing different jobs at different points in our lives, but we all should be treated equally. That is what the law requires. Anyway, I think I've gone on way too long. You have other <laughs> wonderful guests um, to speak to this. Well, I mean, look, I, Katie, and the point is very well taken. Um, and Katie Fang, Andrew Weissman is absolutely right that there are two tiers of justice for rich white guys and everybody else. But, you know, sometimes rich black guys can take advantage of it, too. O.J. Simpson took advantage of it. He was rich and he could afford a great defense. But we, this country actually jailed the former vice president of the United States, Richard Nixon's vice president. Like, this country has managed to put a few rich white guys in jail. But I have never seen anything like the entire system 
move to benefit one single person all the way through the Supreme Court like there it is moving for him. And I'm just going to give you a contrast. This is a case you've been following. Fonnie Willis. Fonnie Willis is attempting to do a RICO investigation of Donald Trump. Somehow her personal relationship, not with the judge, not with somebody on the other side where it will be a conflict of interest, but literally her interpersonal relationships have now gotten Trump to be able to delay even that case. And that was the one that was untouchable because it's a state case. He can't pardon himself from it. And yet even that case is thwarted while his C-list defense gets to try to humiliate this woman about how much cash she has in her house. So she gets humiliated publicly and he again walks away. Yeah, so Andrew Weissman, as we all know, has such an elegant way of explaining things, but I would kind of make it a little bit more blunt because it's not just a two-tier system or a double standard system. It's actually a a different total standard. It's the Trump effect, right? It's the bending over backwards by not only the judiciary, but by prosecutors for fear of the political prosecution angle that is being touted by Trump. It's this idea that one man and one man only can have a different standard applied to him when it comes to the efficacy of our judicial system, when it comes to how these prosecutions are approached. It's not even just the criminal cases, right? It's the civil cases too. It's are the judges acting like that they're completely, you know, impartial and all of the scrutiny that happens. It's amazing, Joy, because the scrutiny doesn't go on defendant Trump. Andrew and I prosecuted between the two of us, I don't know how many cases, some of incredible magnitude. And when you looked at the case, though, sure, you were mindful about potential jury nullification issues. You were mindful about potential witness issues. But it was still always a party to the case. It was a defendant, and especially in a criminal case. It's supposed to be justice is blind. And yet in this instance, the Trump effect is created where you now look at a judge like Aileen Cannon, who seems to be so sympathetic to the fact that the man has to campaign, and yet you and I both know that no other criminal defendant in the United States would get the leeway that is being afforded to him to be able to go and campaign for the Oval Office, the same office that he's now claiming immunity to be able to do whatever he wants to from it. I mean, it really is infuriating. And then in Fulton County, to your point, you have lawyers for the defense, including Steve Sadow, the lawyer for Donald Trump, getting up and talking about how it is so wrong that Fonnie Willis uh, went to a, a church and gave a, quote, church speech and, and how wrong it was for her to talk about, you know, race and religion. And yet that's exactly what is happening here. This this completely misconstruction and the skewing of what the reality is. That wasn't the point of what she said. She talked about when she went to that church, she talked about the fact that she was prosecuting this case and she just said, I need grace to make sure that I am doing the right thing. It certainly wasn't what they were saying on the other side. And so the irony doesn't escape me that Trump wants to talk about and complain about the race card in Fulton County. And yet that's exactly what he's doing. He's targeting a strong black female prosecutor for let's be honest, for dating a strong black male prosecutor at the same time. And really, the evidence isn't there, though. And we all know when we take these cases that you have to have evidence. And the evidence in Fulton County specifically isn't there to disqualify her. 
Yeah, and by the way, just even got a note from my producers, by the way, Spiro Agnew actually didn't even serve a day in jail. He got prosecuted, he didn't even go to jail. So again, Andrew Weissman proven right again. Uh, let me go to you, Tim, because, you know, <laughs> Donald Trump's father had a way of getting out of uh, not paying his tax. He didn't do that either. You know, they own the, they own the prosecutor. <laughs> they, oh, Mr. Morgenthau was in his pocket. You know what I mean? They would just make sure that they gave a lot of money when Morgenthau, who was the predecessor to the current uh, holder of that office, Alvin Bragg, a couple times ago, you know, they just made sure they were in good with him. They, and they, so it's like he has grown up, Donald Trump, never, ever having accountability in his life. And it is wild to me that so many people don't think it is unfair that he's able to get away with alleged actual crimes, including trying to overthrow the government, and that they like him because of that. Also, has anyone ever really said the word jail the way that Donald Trump does? It's not jail, it's jail. It's like the way he said China <laughs> when he was still in office. Um, you know, it's useful. I think there's a there's a you know, we've gone through several a few chapters here of, of what's askew. Andrew laid out, I think, elegantly, as Katie pointed out, uh, some of the institutional flaws that are at work here. Uh, Katie got at the social Trumpian and racial issues that are in play. Um, another factor here, obviously, is that he's an ex-president. And, and he's being prosecuted by people that have stepped gingerly around the fact that he held the highest office in the land. That, I think, was a, a problem with the Mueller probe. Um, Andrew and I have spoken about that in the past. I think that Robert Mueller himself was overly forgiving or, or perhaps overly cautious with Trump because he was a president. And I think Robert Mueller came out of a world with this kind of institutional respect for the office, which is not a shabby thing. But when you're around someone who's inhabiting that office and polluting it and taking advantage of the powers the office bestows upon him, I think you have to have a real world sense of how to prosecute him properly before he does any damage. And I think that runs up against institutions. It runs up against the way the laws work. It runs up against the way the courts work. The, the biggest factor at play right now, obviously, is the clock in every one of these cases. Um, and then it's the whole this whole collision is, is, is inhabited by Donald Trump who has grown up in his entire life with various forms of insulation from accountability. He was born into a wealthy family and his father well, his father's well protected him um, from his own mistakes in the business world. And then he became a celebrity and he enjoyed all the powers that come with being a celebrity, including being able to be predatory towards women and not being held accountable for that. And then he becomes president of the United States. Um, he is an irresponsible, ignorant man who has been, who's had these safety belts around him his whole life. He's never had to learn from his own mistakes. And as you point out, he's never been held accountable. I think what I, you know, in, I think what you've set up in terms of analyzing the dynamics at work around here, I do think that there are part, parties involved in all of the current prosecutions who are approach, approaching it with, with goodwill. I think that, I think that Merrick Garland approached uh, the January 6th prosecution with goodwill in a way that he felt he could put his best foot forward. But like Robert Mueller, I think what came along with that was a little bit of a tone deafness toward the, the, the man they're prosecuting and the people who support him and why speed is of the essence. Because the reality is, if Donald Trump gets back into the White House, he will have the power to dismiss the two federal cases against him. And yeah. he will waste he little will. time doing that. And he will. And, and, and I think prosecutors need to be aware of that. And and, yeah. and so I think this debate between the academic side of the law and the prosecutorial realities of making sure it's enforced are what it's at tension here. 
Uh, exactly. And the bankruptcy laws have protected him. His dad protected him. Everything has protected him his whole life. And now he has armed religious fanatic fans, essentially. He is their religion. He is the Christ to whom they, they pray. And they also are vowing to protect him, maybe even using violence to get him back into office. What a world we live in. And I have to say, the most valiant person in this whole thing is Jack Smith. God bless him and these other prosecutors, including Fonnie Willis and, and including the Attorney General of New York, who are still fighting the good fight. Uh, Andrew Weissman, Katie Fang, Tim O'Brien, Thank you all very much. Up next on the readout in a striking display, thousands of people speaking. Thank you. Speaking of valiancy, thousands of people risked arrest in Russia. Look at this today. Gathering outside Alexei Navalny's funeral to pay their respects and to publicly defy the autocrat, Putin. Look at them. That's bravery. The readout continues after this. Today and every day, Planned Parenthood is committed to ensuring that everyone has the information and resources they need to make their own decisions about their bodies, including abortion care. Lawmakers who oppose abortion are attacking Planned Parenthood, which means affordable, high-quality, basic health care for more than 2 million people is at stake. The right to control our bodies and get the health care we need has been stolen from us. And now, politicians in nearly every state have introduced bills that would block people from getting the sexual and reproductive care they need. Planned Parenthood believes everyone deserves health care. It's a human right. That's why they fight every day to push for common-sense policies that protect our right to control our own bodies and against policies that interfere with decisions between patients and their doctor. Planned Parenthood needs your support now more than ever. With supporters like you, we can reclaim our rights and protect and expand access to abortion care. Visit PlannedParenthood.org future. That's PlannedParenthood.org future. Thousands of mourners defied heavy security as the body of Alexei Navalny, Vladimir Putin's most vocal critic, was laid to rest inside a Moscow church. Relatives and friends said their final goodbyes to the man who fired up a generation of young Russians with his slogan, Russia will be free. Outside, thousands of mourners paid respects to the 47-year-old Navalny, who died mysteriously last month in a, in a Siberian penal colony, sparking worldwide condemnation. This scene is nothing short of remarkable. Russia's opposition out in the open, risking arrest or worse, to say farewell. Meanwhile, here in the U.S., House Republicans are blocking further aid to Ukraine, a democracy and a U.S. ally that Putin invaded. And they're doing it for, you guessed it, Trump. As Ann Applebaum writes in The Atlantic, Donald Trump, who is not the president, is using a minority of Republicans to block aid to Ukraine, to undermine the actual president's foreign policy, and to weaken American power and credibility. Joining me now is Michael McFall, former U.S. ambassador to Russia, MSNBC international affairs analyst and friend of the Navalny family. Um, ambassador McFall it, McFall, it is so good to see you. I just want to let you comment on those scenes. And if we could just put them back up uh, downtown Sterling Brown, just so you can see them, uh, our audience can see them again. Because I, th these, th th this made my heart feel good, even though I feel so sad for the Navalny family. That scene is amazing. I would love for you to comment on it. I agree entirely with you, Joy. Uh, they didn't expect this. Uh, remember, the family had to fight to get his body back. His mother dead. Originally, the conditions were, we'll give you the body to bury him, but you have to have a secret funeral. Uh, they resisted that because the Navalny's are a resistant group. Um, and then they 
this outpouring came. And remember, every single one of those people right now, they are being filmed. Uh, They risk going to jail for years because they were chanting anti-war slogans, by the way, as they march. Uh, And yet they came out in those numbers. And remember, in situations like this, for every one of those that came out, there's another 10 sitting at home that have the same exact views of Navalny They just don't want to risk being arrested. So I think this shows that the ideas of Navalny and his his movement, and by the way, they chanted his wife's name too, Yulia, who Mm. will now take up the baton to be the leader of this movement, is alive and well. Talk talk a little bit about Yulia Navalnaya. She is now emerged as her husband's successor in a way. What an also very brave woman. She's an incredible woman. Um, I actually was with her in Munich uh, the night before he was killed. Uh, she called me that morning to tell me that her husband had been killed. And their daughter, Dasha, as you know, goes to school here at Stanford. So mm-hmm. she's first and foremost concerned about her daughter. She then gave this incredibly moving speech at the Munich Security Conference. Uh, people said it was the most historic, riveting speech ever of that conference. That goes, that's been going on for decades. And now she understands she was out here uh, here in California to see her daughter and speaking to her. It's crystal clear to me that's not a role she wants to play or ever yes. wanted to play. But now mm-hmm. she has to play it. And she has made that clear yeah. in her statements, taking up the baton uh, for uh, for Alexei Navalny. Uh, she is now is the leader happens. of the Democratic opposition. Yeah, this is what happens with the heroic widows of heroic uh, men. Um what do you make of this shift? You know, the, Anne Applebaum wrote a brilliant piece. I wish I could just read it all to my audience tonight. I'll read a little bit of it. Um, it, it the world is watching you know, Kevin McCarthy, then Mike Johnson, the current Speaker of the House, fly to Mar-a-Lago to take instructions. They know that Senator Lindsey Graham, a prominent figure in the Munich Security Conference for decades, backed out abruptly this year after talking with Trump. One more piece. Trump wants to remain engaged with the world, but on different terms. He said repeatedly he wants a deal with Russian President Vladimir Putin. And maybe this is what he means. If Ukraine is partitioned or if Ukraine loses the war, then Trump could twist the situation to his own advantage. She also talks about the fact that he's running American foreign policy from Mar-a-Lago, which says to our allies and to our enemies you can't even really tr- make a deal with the U.S. government or trust the U.S. government because the foreign policy isn't run out of the White House. It's run by Trump, who's not the president. What do you make of all this and the shift in the Republican Party? It's just atrocious. I, I mean, I was in Munich with Anne, uh, meeting government officials from that part of the world. And frankly, Joy, it was embarrassing to be a, an American because for many decades we have been most important ally to all these countries, but we've been the leader of the free world. And now everybody, you know, ministers from Poland, Lithuania, Estonia, but leaders in Taiwan too, and leaders from the Middle East too, uh, are saying, hey, maybe America can't be there, is not trusted, can't be uh, counted on. And and after a couple of years, maybe they'll just give up. And so the, the overwhelming message I heard in Munich is, is this the end of America's leadership. And the second thing is, just as you said, it's one guy. Uh, I mean, I can't prove this, but I wonder if he's just because he's such a petty man that because Zelensky didn't help him uh, find the alleged dirt on the Bidens that he wanted, that he's trying to punish President Zelensky now. But but I'm here to tell you, I met with warriors, uh, wounded warriors from Ukraine and Munich as well. Uh, more Ukrainians will die 
if we don't provide this aid now and I'm not a, if Mr. Trump is reelected and he wants to try to do a deal with Putin, I, I welcome that. But he's not elected yet. He's not the president of the United States yet. And by blocking this aid now, thousands, tens of thousands maybe of Ukrainians are going to die before that November election or that January inauguration. So I just find it irresponsible on so many levels. And I don't even think it is in Mr. Trump's own interests to have that kind of slaughter. Give the money now. And if he wins the election, knock yourself out. President-elect Trump, uh, uh, if you can do a deal, I'm highly skeptical that he can. But don't let Ukrainians die between now and our November yeah. elections. I will say just the contrast between the valiance uh, and bravery of those Russian people and the cowardice of our elected officials on in one particular political party. It's pretty stunning. I'm going to have you come back on because we want to talk about more about why you, Ukraine should matter to the American people. Michael McFall, Ambassador Michael McFall. Thank you very much. Coming up. Dartmouth College students have ended their hunger strike after 12 days over their school's policies on Israel and how they've handled dissent against those policies. One of those students joins me next. It's Monday night. It's Monday, everyone. Happy to have you here on this Monday night. Lots of news to get to tonight. Make more of your Mondays on MSNBC with Jen Psaki and Rachel Maddow back to back. If you were talking to a voter, what would you say to them about why this case matters to them? Was this the kind of proceeding you would expect in a typical New York DA's case, or does this really feel different? Inside with Jen Psaki at 8 p.m. Eastern, followed by The Rachel Maddow Show at 9, Mondays on MSNBC. Monday night. Alpha One Niner, commence Wi-Fi device checklist. Laptops on. TVs streaming. Game console consoling. Smart thermostat set for cuddle time. Doorbell camera. Oh, my package is here. Fast, reliable, able to power tons of devices inside your home at once. All systems go. You are clear for takeoff. This is Xfinity Internet. Wi-Fi built to wow. And watch the short film The Aviators now playing at Xfinity.com. Restrictions apply. Actual speeds vary and are not guaranteed. Today, President Biden announced that the U.S. will airdrop food, food aid into the Gaza Strip, noting that the humanitarian aid flowing into the region for Palestinians is insufficient. Insufficient and also deadly. Global condemnation is erupting after Israeli forces were accused of opening fire on a crowd of Palestinians who were waiting to get food from trucks in Gaza City. More than 100 people were killed and over 700 injured. Israel has denied opening fire on those seeking aid and disputed the death toll. But France is calling for an independent inquiry, and Qatar's foreign ministry issued a statement condemning the incident as a, quote, heinous massacre committed by the Israeli occupation, unquote. This comes as international organizations are sounding the alarm, saying an unprecedented famine in Gaza is imminent and almost inevitable. Meanwhile, closer to home, we are seeing hunger in a different form. Student hunger strikers at Dartmouth College have ended their protest against the college's approach to the Israel-Hamas war. One of the eight students explains why they went on strike. In the fall, Kevin and Rowan, two peaceful student protesters, were arrested for engaging in an act of civil disobedience. Um, and we believe that they were long wrongfully arrested. 
Joining me now is Rowan Wade, a Dartmouth College student who just ended a 12-day hunger strike. Rowan, thank you for being here. Now, you are one of the students, um, I understand, who was arrested in this peaceful protest. Tell me why you were protesting, why you were arrested, and what you think this hunger strike has accomplished. So I was arrested during a peaceful protest last fall. And despite us being part of a peaceful protest as part of a legacy of decades of peaceful protest dating back to South African apartheid, the movement against for divestment from South African apartheid and the Vietnam War era, we engaged in similar tactics. And we are seeing something that is terrifying in that there seems to be an exception to free speech when it comes to the issue of Palestine. And we engaged in peaceful protest. And while we are peaceful the entire time, and the college finally has made the concession that we were peaceful the entire time, um, the Dartmouth administration claimed that we were violent the day afterwards, which is extremely concerning. We believe that it is so imperatively important for us to take part in, in protest and resist the fact that our tuition dollars and our tax dollars are being used to fund this genocide. Because what moment, if we don't stand up now, what moment will we? And while our communities are going hungry, while our communities are in need of resources, as a union organizer and a working class American, I feel that firsthand, the fact that our institutions and our um, government are refusing to listen to us and listen to young people and the American public and instead are funding this genocide. It's devastating. And that's why we decided we had to hunger strike as a last resort. And, and you all did this for 12 days. Um, how, how are you feeling? Um, how are you and your fellow protesters feeling physically? Yeah, um, it definitely was not easy. Um, I was just released out of the hospital. Um, so I have a decently clean bill of health right now, still in the recovery process, not fully clear yet. Um, one of my uh, other hunger strikers is still in the hospital right now. Um, another hunger striker was hospitalized along the way. But the discomfort that we felt from hunger striking for 12 days is nothing compared to the fact that my peers in Gaza are being starved right now and what they're going through. And so, you know, the most important thing here is that we have to center and the fact that we need to be feeding, Pal ensuring that people in Palestine have access to food rather than using our tuition to bomb them. Let, let me ask you one more question. I'm going to have you jump past. You've gotten a response from your college, from Dartmouth. If you could talk to President Biden, to the White House, what would you want to see change? Listen to young people. Young people across this country have been standing up and protesting nonstop for months. And it feels like our voices are not being heard at all. We are to the point of hunger striking. We have tried every other tactic. If Biden wants to count on our vo votes, he needs to actually take action and take a very quick and rapid action to stop the U.S. Uh, U.S.'s complicity in this ongoing genocide. 
Rowan Wade, um, you know, act, young activists have changed the world uh, many, many times before and changed this country. So I want to thank you for taking some time to talk with me. Uh, you all are very brave young people, and I always love it when young people get involved. And so I wanted to talk with you today. So thank you and feel better and heal. Thank you. Thank you. All right. Coming up next. Thank you very much. All right. We're going to make quite a turn now because we're going to talk about this lady, the queen, Beyonce. She already runs the world, as you know. And now the Texas native is about to run country flawless with her upcoming album. But of course, America has a problem. And y'all haters are corny trying to gatekeep country music for white America. What they don't know is that black Americans actually created country music. We'll be right back. Today is the first day of Women's History Month, and unless you've been living under a rock, you've probably heard country music has gotten Beyonce-fied. After their surprise release last month of two singles off of Beyonce's upcoming album, Texas Hold'em and 16 Carriages, Unsurprisingly, some folks weren't happy that this black woman superstar in the worlds of R&B and pop would venture into country, even though she is from Houston, Texas, literally. A small country music station in Oklahoma initially refused to play Texas Hold'em, but changed its tune after being inundated by the Beehive. Last week, Beyonce became the first black woman to top Billboard's hot country chart and got the stamp of approval from the queen of country music herself, the great Dolly Parton, for doing so. The most Grammy-winning artist in history knows how to knock down barriers for herself. But Beyonce is also giving some deserved shine to other black country and folk artists, like Rhiannon Giddens, who plays banjo on Texas Hold'em. Giddens wrote about the black roots of country music this week, reminding us enslaved people of the African diaspora created the banjo in the Caribbean in the 1600s. This is historical fact. The hype around Bay's new single is also amplifying the many black artists already in country music. It's the Beyonce boost in streams for black women country artists, including a 275% increase. Wow. For a pioneer of the genre, Linda Martell, the first black woman artist to play the Grand Ole Opry back in 1969. I'm joined now by songwriter and producer Alice Randall, the first black woman to co-write a number one country single and the author of the upcoming book, Memoir, the upcoming memoir, My Black Country, which also has a companion album. It is so great to talk with you, Alice Randall. And so I just want to start by getting your take on all of the sort of contretemps around Beyonce charting in country. I have to play this. This is John Schneider. He used to be on a show that used to glorify the Confederate flag on a car. Here he is. He's, by the way, he's from New York, but here he is. Oh, we don't have it. Okay. Well, I'm just going to read what he said. This is what John Schneider, who used to play one of either Bo or Luke Duke in the Dukes of Hazzard, he said, they've got to make their mark just like a dog in a dog walk park. You know, every dog has to make mark every tree. So that's what's going on here. Would you like to respond to that? That comment is idiocy. I'll just say that simply. That is a, a uninformed comment. So African-Americans have been in 
recorded country music since its beginning. It's Women's History Month, so I want to shout out immediately to Lil Hardin. Johnny Cash declared, the great Johnny Cash, that Blue Yodel Number no. 9 was the most iconic country song of all time. Who played on every bar of Blue Yodel Number no. 9? Lil Hardin, a Black woman. That was 1930. Country itself what? begins, I believe, with D4 Bailey in 1927 playing Pan American Blues on WSM Radio. Black people have been in recorded country since the beginning. And as the brilliant Rhiannon Giddens pointed out, we have been uh, we have been contributing to the form since the uh, form was unrecorded, since it was yeah. not before it was recorded. Yeah. I mean, and creating the banjo kind of makes the black folk a part of country music. You know, it is interesting, the sort of, you know, music is one of the most segregated formats, right? It is extremely segregated. And there was this idea that there's white radio and black radio, even rock and roll gets segregated after black folks create it. Suddenly, you know, white people will redo it. People like Elvis become superstars from it, but then they segregate it and say, now black people can't do rock and roll. It's a weird thing that happens in the music industry. Why do you think it's still happening now in the 21st century? It's complex, and that has to do with marketing, because I want to make it very clear that country music, by definition, in my opinion, is a combination of English, Irish, and Scottish ballot forms, plus African-American influences, plus evangelical Christianity. It actually requires uh, African-American influences to be country, or it's it's folk music. So mm-hmm. uh, so those have to do with marketing things. At some point, someone thought they made more money by dividing the audiences. And some people I uh, think it was part of how race was constructed in America to divide these audiences. And I think that there has been a kind of cultural redlining that Beyonce has triumphantly evaded in this moment. Yeah. It is interesting to listen to somebody, an actor from New York who pretended to be a Southerner, going after a woman who's literally from Texas and who is a product of the very culture that created country music. She's much more legitimate in the genre than anything he could ever do. So, you know, the audacity of him to comment at all. I believe everyone, I invite all voices into the conversation, but I will just say that, for example, the Texas, another big black influence on country and Western music or a lot of people don't know, I've heard this comment, your costume is not our, don't take our culture, your costume is not our culture. Well, those are people who don't understand that a large percentage of 19th and 20th century cowboys were black and brown. And that actually cowboy culture is significantly African-American culture and cowboy songs, the 19th century cowboy yeah. songs that were discovered were the first cowboy camp that the uh, Thorpe came across was a black cowboy camp singing songs. So yeah. there are many different ways that black culture is introdu- uh has entered into country and Western music. Absolutely. C- cowboys were essentially enslaved cattle herders who then went private practice <laughs> and essentially we're doing the same cattle herding they were doing as enslaved people for money a quarter of them were black uh, alice randall isn't going anywhere because guess what it's about to be our favorite part of the week who won the week is back and we'll be right back <laughs> Well, guys, we made it to the end of another week, which means it is time to play our favorite game. Who won the week? Back with me is the great Alice Randall. Alice, who won the week? Beyonce won the week. She is having her second 
week in country music atop the charts and she is a top of the of the hot 100 and yes. she has her essence cover march and april and she and her mama have sacred out in the world it is adding to people's shine all over this country. She won the week. Amen. Be Be Beyonce won the week. Yes, she did. Okay, well, my who won the week is da -da 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 -da, Hunter Biden. Yes, Hunter Biden for sitting through seven hours of Republican nonsense in a deposition in their bogus investigation and, as the transcript showed, getting the best of all of them. This man turned the tables on Matt Gaetz's questions about his battle with drug use, saying, quote, of all the people sitting around this table, do you think that's appropriate for you to be the one to ask me? I mean, point. The man who cooperated in a Justice Department probe into Gates said that he witnessed him attend parties involving, quote, sex, drugs, and a whole lot of it. And then, of course, there was this point that was raised by Fox host Steve Ducey, of all people. Speaking of Republicans, you know, James Comer, who ran that committee, mm -hmm. uh, he apparently left the hearing early and did not ask a single question. Huh. How weird is that? Thank you. That is the Who Won the Week. Thank you, Alice Randall. And that's tonight's readout. Hey everyone, it's MSNBC's Chris Hayes. For the first time since 1892, we have an election in which both candidates have presidential records. It's a chance to take a hard look at what Joe Biden and Donald Trump have actually done as president. On a special Why Is This Happening podcast series called With Pod 2024 The Stakes, I'm talking to experts about the two candidates' records on specific policy areas like immigration, taxes, climate, and more. So you know what's at stake come November. Search for Why Is This Happening and follow.